for some reason, it is almost impossible to make anthropology funny. I don't know why it is. I don't know why it is. I don't think it's intrinsic, but it's like, for some reason, there's very little humor in anthropology. And I think that there are ways, um, ways of making it funnier. Challenge accepted. Welcome to the third episode of Anthropological Airwaves. My name is Arjun Shankar, postdoctoral fellow at the University of Pennsylvania. Now thus far, we've been attempting to critically engage with anthropological work, which might both shift the way we think about our own research, but also might open up new avenues for public engagement. And this episode is no different. You're going to hear from Damian Stankiewicz of Temple University in conversation with Diego Arispe-Pazan of the University of Pennsylvania. And they're really asking us in this episode to interrogate the way we think about media ethnography. If in the past we may have imagined an anthropological project dedicated to media which focused on the national imagination and the construction of the national imagination, Damian and Diego are really telling us that in the 21st century, digital fragmentation has forced us to both think about the imagination itself differently, but also to think differently about how we might study media consumption and production. And with that, I'll leave it to Diego and Damien to take us forward. Enjoy. So my name is Diego Arispe Basan. I am a fifth year in the PhD program in anthropology at the University of Pennsylvania, and I am here speaking with Damien Stankiewicz, professor at Temple University. One of the things that was of interest to the podcast producers, um, and of interest to me also, was an article that recently came out that you wrote about the notion of social imaginaries. And in your article, and I, and I fully agree with the argument that you put forth in the article, that this concept of the imaginary or the imagination has reached a tipping point of overuse. But it seemed like, you know, something sort of stuck in your craw about it. You know, what, why did you pick this topic to write an article about? Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me to talk with you guys today. When people have as you say, a kind of bone to pick. I think very often it comes from the, you know your own personal experiences, engagements, and experiences in the field. And this is where this article grew out of. I mean, when I was trained in anthropology, it was a very Andersonian moment, and it was sort of the launch of and um, catching on of media anthropology. And in some ways, and, and at that moment, it was very kind of liberatory, and it was this moment of, of feeling like, wow, we can go out and we can study pamphlets in Papua New Guinea, and we can study television in China and radio in Peru and all of these things will help us to get at something very fundamental about it, either a national consciousness or some sort of coherent consciousness. And so my research in Europe was about sort of taking this and applying this tool, as it were, to understanding this television channel that had been launched by France and Germany and the kind of interests of a broader European collectivity and, you know, in a certain way, which I think is very compelling and which I discuss more in my book, it sort of aligned exactly with this kind of a Ryan Andersonian moment of saying, oh, well, media are the, are the kind of motors for social collectivities. And they literally kind of took a leaf out of that book and said, let's do this. Let's launch this television channel. So this is a really, it was a really compelling example of that for me, of, of this idea of imagination, which is literally the language that they used, that they wanted a common imagination. And finding that just in all kinds of ways, big and small, it just didn't sort of cohere with the 
squeezing of audiences and fragmentation of audiences and the digitization of media and the ways in which people are, are moving across and don't attach themselves to any kind of media platform in any kind of consistent way. I, I, it's all more reason why I think this kind of paradigm is just too broad and lends itself to these kinds of overstatements or overgeneralizations about how people think things together. And, and you could, I mean, you can always generate an argument, right? It's not that hard to say, oh, well, European identity is this or that because some, you know, 10 people told me this thing. But I think that that's, that actually is an oversimplification. And I also think it, it actually is politically problematic because I think what you're doing is reifying and kind of re-inscribing these big, holistic, congruent uh, cultural holes that, that are, I think, mostly fictitious. <laughs> There's a, a deep anxiety nowadays, especially with the current moment and what happened with the election. People are interested in two things, I, I find, a lot. First of all, this idea of the fake news, what you were describing with the squeezed audiences and the directed, the targeted news, fake or otherwise. But then also, people are really concerned with research and how academics of a certain sort put forth this narrative that, for example, one of the candidates was definitely going to win. And so people have equated the loss of trust in these forms of analysis and knowledge production with a post-truth moment, which I find profoundly problematic. I think also because your research, broadly speaking, is also about the formation of these political publics through media is relevant today, obviously, not just in the US, but in your own context, right, in, in Germany and France where elections are looming. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about is a little bit sort of these two anxieties, right? The anxiety about fake news and the anxiety about these forms of knowledge that has, have failed on a few different accounts for people. Big questions. <laughs> I, wish, I wish I had some sort of silver bullet for thinking about fake news and what the problem is there. And, it, you know, I think, Diego, one thing that you point out just in talking just now is, is that there is so much, you know, for lack of a better word, discourse being generated about these things. And it's, it's very difficult in a way to think critically about you know what where is where is the truth where is where what is being produced and by whom because as you're pointing out i mean these numbers and the election polling and all of the kind of quote unquote collective knowledge and understanding about what the election was and where it was going sort of fell flat on its face right and and we're, people are still sort of debating why that is and how that happened but then on the other side now you have all of these accusations about fake news and and who's generating and it's happening on both sides right it's the liberals and the conservatives both sort of throwing this back at each other. Make a wish. Count to three. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. No, I don't think CNN is fake news. Okay, that's fake news. I think this is fake news because the okay, underlying yes, thank assumption you very much, is everyone. That Thanks, everyone. Thanks a lot. If I had anything to offer to this whole sort of mess of things, which I think we're so, you know, kind of it's so in, we're inside it right now, and so it's very difficult to gain distance, but I, I would say that it connects in a way back to the article and to the kind of notion of imagination, because I think ultimately we are prone to thinking, and it is sort of easier both to talk about and to explain po politics in terms of whole 
publics, right? Or whole sort of coherent groups of people that somehow all have similar reasons for doing things or saying things and, and get their news the same way. I mean, if, if in a certain way, we are still all operating within an Andersonian paradigm. News, news um, agencies, analysts, pundits, academics themselves, we're all still sort of thinking about, well, how do we explain in a kind of, you know, maybe two-page article what is going on with conservatives in the middle of the country and their news their news consumption i think that anthropologists sociologists journalists uh, all of us together have to really start to rethink the complexities of where people are getting their news, how they're interpreting their news, whether or not it's even news that they're where they're getting these ideas and information. And I think that this is another problem that I'm try I try to point out in the in the article, which is that we are kind of media centric in a way that I think doesn't always help us in the sense that yes, you can you can go to the middle of of Arkansas and you can go to a small town that's very very red and say how do you you know what kinds of news do you read what kinds of news do you watch where do you get your news and you may actually be really far afield from understanding how people are actually processing political information which may come mostly from their family or word of mouth or who know you know there there's a whole social context there that actually anthropologists are really well equipped to think about and so small wisdom if I have anything to offer to this this whole moment is that there is I think a miss emphasis on both the kind of coherencies or the or the consistencies in which people find news consume news and also the overattention in some ways to the text themselves or to the messages or narratives themselves that we presume somehow extend from Washington to to the middle of the country somewhere. I think the, the answer is really twofold. I think one, we haven't done very much ethnography in these places, period. I mean, one thing at the anthropology meetings this year, we kind of had a, a there was a kind of emergency session about post-election anthropology. And one thing that we had, that a, a few of us who study media were talking about is that we really don't have anyone who's been studying this stuff. We don't, we haven't, don't have much ethnography of the far right or the right in this country, period, much less the ways that they're using media or not, right? And I would say that the second part of that is that we do need to do the ethnography, spend the time there, and then see how or why media matters. I feel, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel that anthropologists, because they're so embedded in the fine-grained analysis in the moments, sharing space with people individually and mm -hmm. collectively, but not, you know, you can't do an ethnography of 100 million people, mm -hmm. right? So there's that issue to anthropology, but also the fact that you know we weave a tangled web, right? And so it's very hard to produce policy from anthropology for people to follow. And so even in media, you know, we want to say, well, this is how we can approach media reception or how to conduct a reception study, for example. People want to hear, I want this solved next month mm -hmm. or in six months or a year, mm -hmm. and that's very difficult, I think, for anthropologists mm -hmm. to, to do. But actually, I think anthropologists, and it's not that what we do is less valuable. In fact, I think it's as valuable, if not more valuable, to say, okay, we have these very kind of neatly packaged hypotheses or statements about why people do or think the things they do, maybe in, relate, in relationship to media, for example. and. So let's see. Let's see how that works when we look at the micro scale, when we look at a community, or we look at people's you know everyday lives and what they're doing in their living rooms and and in their workplaces. And if we 
if we are able to, as I think we are, to say, well, actually, yes, the get, it gets it right in these ways, but actually these other ways, this gets it quite wrong. That's incredibly useful. And I really think that we're, we as, as a discipline are, are some of the only people out there who are equipped or, or at least committed to doing that. Uh, I think especially now because as we were saying earlier, there's an opening now for the kinds of research and, and knowledge production that anthropologists can put out because, you know, there has been this, there is now a deeper distrust in, to put it coarsely, quantified forms of data um, that have been processed through any number of, of uh, uh, statistical procedures, et cetera, et cetera. You know, having a solid contribution is, is significant. So one of the last things I, I wanted to talk about was a little bit that how do we this you know this is sort of out of the scope of, of particularly your research but but also not entirely because you do write about media engagement actually one of your articles is about imagined audiences right but if we were to imagine an audience putting you on the spot <laughs> for anthropological research what would you imagine it being uh, I think that we have to first make clear what anthropology is and what it does and then sort of have a kind of fill in then fill in what comes after that because i think my sense of a lot of anthropological media outreach the kind of remaking of anthropology as relevant to a broader public doesn't always make clear to people that anthropologists are in the field of or in the business of shall we say studying kind of human similarity and difference and these kind of fundamental anthro 101 concepts and premises that um if you don't have them and you're not, if they're not readily kind of accessible or made clear before you're encountering some particular ethnographic project or argument, a theoretical argument, I think people can tune out fairly quickly because it's not, it's not because they're not interested, it's that they don't have a kind of framework for processing or interpreting what anthropologists are supposed to be doing or what, why, why we do what we do. And our methodology, for example, is fundamental to that. So that's why, for example, at, at Temple now, um, in, in collaboration with PhillyCam, we have this television series that, well, it's only every few months, every four, three to six months that we're able to produce an episode, but it's called TV, And the reason why we call it TV is because I personally think that it's very important that we emphasize that this is like, that anthropology is humanology, right? It's the study of humans in a kind of broad way, in an empathetic way, in a deeply, finely grained way that pays attention to people's everyday lives. And I think if we can find a way to just first or at least regularly or somehow kind of consistently make that, make that clear, alongside all of the stuff that then we are able to offer, I think that we'd be much better off. If you, if somebody gave you a huge grant to produce some kind of media object about anthropology, to transmit maybe even your own research, you know, what would you envision? What would you dream up? Well, I can tell you that Although it's been in a much more limited budget, part of my con my conceptualization of this um, Philicam TV is it's probably in smaller scale and on a ti much tinier budget what I would want to see done on a much broader scale and a much bigger budget, which is to say, I mean, each episode is a theme and each segment that people are developing for this semester, um, they, you know, it is a way of investigating that. So they're, sh they're short, some of them are short, some of them are long, some are ethnographic vaguely, some are, you know, interviews, some are experimental, completely sort of 
um, animated or using other kinds of you know found footage, etc. Seeing last semester, we had this gift episode, gifts and gift giving, and some and these this one crew, this three these three students did a piece on giftedness, gifted students, like what that means in terms of why that is the language that we use and what kinds of burdens does that kind of have and the kind of uh, double-edged sword of this label of being gifted. And I thought it was an incredibly interesting way of thinking about this thing that I, I had never really thought seriously about. And I think that that's the kind of thing that if you blew it up to a broader scale and you and you had the the platform and the money, I think that you could do this in a way that was incredibly like slick and fun and just mind bending. And so I guess one, one last thing, I wanted to ask you, you've been talking about it all throughout, right? The political moment that we're in right now in the United States, which is where we live, where, we, where our institutions are based. What do you think anthropology has to now more concretely bring to that conversation? I think that we're in a moment where we really do need to, and we've been doing this in various ways for a long time, so I don't want to suggest that it hasn't been in sort of part of, of the story that anthropology has been telling for a long time, but I think we really do need to direct our energies in some ways to challenging the kind of cultural holisms that are so kind of, in a way, banal and constitute so much of what people imagine to be like the social contours of the world in terms of not only national configurations of culture, but religious configurations of culture, the kinds of bounded, homogenized conceptions of culture, which we have for a very long time been taking aim at, but which on the one hand um, have been in some ways recuperated and redeployed years after the fact by people who, you know, culture is no longer our concept. It hasn't been for a long time. And I think that we are seeing, especially in the last 10 to 20 years, this kind of the kind of objectification of culture that has been very, very troubling and ex I think has accelerated in a way that has made it commonsensical, which I think we as anthropologists now need to pay a lot of attention to and in both engaging with these popular or kind of vernacular forms of cultural object objectification that we, we are seeing all around us and b theoretically on the theoretical front trying to find alternative ways of of talking about sameness and difference that are not that do not sort of feed into or map onto these kinds of overly politicized and and i think highly reductivist forms of talking about collectivity human collectivity but i think we're thinking about how to do that but i do think we're still not sort of completely free of culture and of all the implications of collectivities that we spin and which then have their own lives in the world right that that I I think we all would prefer to not see mobilized in the ways that they are. Obviously, we have some of these words, pluralism, fluidity, hybridity, but they haven't quite, I think, done the job of nailing the coffin shut. As I was saying earlier, there's so much we don't know. I think that one thing that this political moment has has revealed is that our models and our ways of explaining things, our way of, of predicting things have kind of broken down. Not our, when I say our, I'm, I'm speaking very, very broadly because I don't think it's anthropologists necessarily, but our kind of common political language well. and models, right? Yeah, I, yeah, we're, we're doing perfectly we're fine. fine yeah. But no, but I do think that it is time for anthropologists and other social scientists and, and, and researchers and, and people everywhere to think about why 
why what has happened right why have why have we failed to understand one another in a real way and i think that that's a, an important way of framing it not oh well there's this like group that voted for trump or there are people who you know are xenophobic and and who knows what they're thinking we have to go find out because i think that there's a kind of as you say an imagining of these people or a projection about what these people quote unquote are like and to break down some of the misunderstanding and lack of information, it's going to take partnerships, collaborations with groups of people who, with whom we don't normally partner or collaborate with to understand so that they can understand what we're thinking, then we can understand what they're thinking. And, and as I was saying earlier, I think that that really probably requires that we start to shift our focus to places where those those kinds of discrepancies and belief and ideology and, and what we consider to be moral life are most pronounced. And I think it comes back again to this poorly formulated imagination as collectivity, as collective feeling, as collective thought, mm -hmm. not just in the anthropological world, but also for people writ large, right? Mm -hmm. People imagining what others imagine mm -hmm. and how you pointed out, I mean, we joked about it, but as anthropologists, we're not fine, right? Because we have to engage with any number of people through any number of means. So we're actually not fine, even though we are not one of the disciplines that was you know, um, that people have lost faith in after post-election and et cetera. So I think you That's because people nicely. never had faith in us today. <laughs> <laughs> Let's end with that. Um, Who said you. anthropology couldn't be funny? <laughs> Again, challenge accepted. Uh, <laughs> it's my new podcast idea. I'm going to take over this one. <laughs> Just turn into a comedy hour. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Damien, for agreeing to chat with us and talk to us about your research, this article, and laugh a little bit. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Big day for President Trump. He has just arrived in Israel. As you can imagine, there's massive security. Can you imagine Donald Trump standing up one day and delivering a State of the Union address? Thank you all so much for listening, and I hope you will tune in next episode, which is on the subject of museum studies. The episode's produced by Nushin Samimi, and the host of the episode is Stephanie Ma, graduate student at the University of Pennsylvania, who will be in conversation with Monique Scott of Bryn Mawr College and Salam Al-Quintar of the Penn Museum, thinking together about the ways that museums are both active sites for anthropological knowledge production, as well as the many ways that museums engage a diverse array of publics. It should be a fantastic conversation, and I hope you all will tune in. If you want to view paradise, the music you're hearing in this episode is from the song Pure Imagination from the classic 70s film Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Want to change the world? There's nothing to it.